Amen. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that this morning that we can come into your house. We thank you, Lord, that our failures do not define us because that's what you do. And you define us as people that you so dearly love. God, be with us this morning as we continue to worship you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, at this time, the, uh, our Grove kids are dismissed. And, uh, and listen, if you would like to be part of our, our praise team, playing or singing, uh, just let me know. But that was good. Well, welcome to the second Sunday of the year 2024. 19,350 minutes down, 506,250 minutes to go. Uh, question, who here wants this year to be their best year ever? Me too, right? Me too. Uh, now, last Sunday, we talked about hitting it more in 2024, and the it being your goals to becoming more like Jesus and to live in the life that you were created to live, the life that you always wanted to live. And, and we said that to, to hit it more, that to live that life, that you must follow the right script, uh, that you must clarify what you want, you must define your core values, uh, you must set some 252 goals, intellectual, physical, spiritual, and relational, that you must start now, and that you must practice accountability with yourself and a few others. And understand, without this accountability, as I found out once again in 2023, your goals will most likely not happen. It'll pretty much just be another year of wishful thinking. Get it? Get it? Good. Now, I have more copies of the uh, values and goals sheet on the back kiosk right there if you want to pick it up. And as always, you can go online and listen to the message if you happened to miss it last week. Now, this morning, though, after a 12-week hiatus for our Grace is Greater Than series for the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, we're returning to our verse by verse by verse by verse by verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, the King and his kingdom. Today is actually our 66th message in the study of Matthew. Now, some may wonder, why are we spending so much time on just this one gospel? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You see, the goal of this study is for us as people who gather at 3210 Prophet Road, the goal is for us to know better and to follow more closely to know better and to follow more closely the one who gave his life for us and whose name we bear. That question is, everybody okay with that goal? I hope so because there, there is no more important thing in your life than knowing Jesus better and following him closer. Like, do you want to know him better? Do you want to follow him more closely? as you begin to live the life, the kingdom life he's called you to live. That is why we are doing this deep dive into these words that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, the ex-tax collector, formerly known as Levi, to put on paper. And listen, another powerful thing about doing this verse-by-verse study is that it forces us not to skip over everything, skip over anything. 
Therefore, we have to wrestle with hard-to-understand passages, like wiping the dust off our feet. Like, what does it mean to be as shrewd as serpents, as gentle as dove? What does it really mean to turn the other cheek? It also means that we have to deal with passages that we would much rather ignore on topics like anger, lust, divorce, unforgiveness, judgment, the narrow road, and depart from me, I never knew you. And I got to tell you, this week when I began diving back into Matthew, and I grabbed my trusty, as you know, when I start digging in my trusty file folder and start writing stuff down, two things hit me right away. Wow, I forgot how tough this is. And number two, I forgot how much fun it is. Now, I want to start off our time of study reading the passages of Scripture. It's not from Matthew, but yet it, it paints a powerful picture of the point that Matthew is driving home in our text. Not only in our text, actually, but in all of Matthew 11 and 12. It's from John chapter 1. We're going to read it together. I'm going to let you go first. On the count of three, you go. One, two, three. Let's start over, okay? After I say three. One, two, three. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Amen. Became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God bless the reading of his words. He that has ears, let him hear. Now understand, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, the word that was with God and that was God put on flesh. Yes, the all powerful, all knowing, always existing one through whom all things were made literally walked among us. And you know, I think that what I just said does not create nearly enough all in wonder in us as it should. Like, like imagine that you never heard the story about God putting in the flesh. Like you know, there's a, you know there's a God, a great creator God, a God so, so, so to the infinite power greater than you are And then one day this God shows up in your neighborhood. He he walks your streets. 
He sits across the table from you, the God who spoke everything into existence. And why has this guy come? Because in him was life, and all mankind desperately needed that life. And to those who received him, who believed in his name, who believed in his power and his plan and his purposes, he gave the right to become children of God. Adopted into the very family of God. Come on, are you kidding me? How awesome is that? Amen? That's the gospel. Uh, That's the good news. However, not everything in the verses we just read is good news. Because not everyone accepted the invitation to receive Christ, to believe in his name and have life. He was in the world, verses 11 and 12, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. If we did not know the story, we would say, what? That can't be right. Like, like John, are you telling me that the people who have been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years, when he finally came, they, they rejected him? They, they didn't recognize him? They, they wouldn't receive him? They wouldn't believe in his name? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And brothers and sisters, that is what Matthew is going to begin to deal with in this gospel. Uh, the, tra- the tragic truth that Jesus gives an open invitation to come to him, but most will reject that invitation. They did then and they still do today. Understand for 10 chapters, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been telling us over and over again just who Jesus is. I mean, it's as if Matthew is an attorney calling witnesses into the courtroom to give a testimony to the claims that Jesus made about his identity. And listen, if you look at the 10 chapters we studied so far in that way, you can see that they really are a a series of testimonies to the deity of Jesus. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, we begin with the testimony of history as we see the genealogy and ancestry that points to Christ as the Messiah. And then we see the testimony of the virgin birth as the text tells us, that Jesus was uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit without a human father. And then in chapter 2, we have the testimony of fulfilled prophecy when Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy in perfect detail. And then in chapter 3, we have the testimony of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, a man filled with the Holy Spirit who says that about Jesus, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Also in chapter 3, we have the testimony of God himself, who said at Jesus' baptism, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. In chapter 4, we see the absolute power of Jesus as he goes out in the wilderness and defeats the arch enemy of God, Satan. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' powerful, authoritative manifesto about what it means to live in his kingdom. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus comes down from that mountainside and demonstrates that he has absolute authority over all things. As he heals diseases, as he casts out demons, as he cleanses lepers, as he calms violent storms, as he raises people from the dead, and as he forgives sins. Yes, both the natural world and the supernatural world all bow to his commands. And finally in chapter 10, we have Jesus' mission discourse where he sends his guys out like sheep among wolves, to preach about the kingdom 
and with the incredible promise that if we acknowledge him before men, that he will acknowledge us before our Father in heaven. Again, Matthew, the first 10 chapters of this gospel, has laid out all this evidence. Like all these witnesses have been called in, as it were, into the courtroom to testify that Jesus is indeed the Christ, God the Son, the Word become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And now as Matthew approaches chapters 11 and 12, he has a different purpose in mind. Based on all this testimony, Matthew's going to tell us what the response was of those who heard and saw Jesus. And that's what's going down in Matthew chapter 11 and 12. Matthew's recording the various responses that the Jewish people and the religious leaders had to the person and message of Jesus. Yes, some did receive him and believe in his name and find life. But most, like in our own day, did not. And instead, rejected him. Question, why did so many people not receive Jesus? Why did so many people not believe in his name? Why, why don't people come to Jesus? There are many reasons, and Matthew's going to give us two in our text this morning. But before we go there, a brief announcement, and then we're going to do a take two. If you're visiting, that's when we get up and say, yo, how you doing to everybody around us? Here's an announcement. Uh, on February the 2nd and 3rd, um, we're having gathering number one, rediscovering discipleship, making Jesus' final words our first work. You see, our, our goal right now, we put a stake in the ground this new year, that our goal is to become a church of disciples who make disciples. And what's going to happen is on, on Friday about 6.30 to 9 o'clock, and we're going to come in 6.30, we're going to have dinner. When my wife gets back from her mission trip to Cambodia, I'm going to let her know she's cooking some pasta for us, right? So we're going to have some dinner, and then we're going to watch a video from discipleship.org, have some roundtable discussions about, hey, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to make disciples? Saturday, we'll come back around 9, be there from 9 to 3, watch two videos, more roundtables, we'll have lunch, I don't know if my brother's here from Chick-fil-A yet, Mr. Walter, but I think he's back in town. Uh, I think Walter may help us with lunch for that day, and, and he's always good about that. After lunch, we'll watch one video, another roundtable. And this is step one, right, uh, to become a church of disciples that make disciples. Now, now, why is rediscovering discipleship and making Jesus' last word or first word so important? Because the best thing that we can do for anyone that's the Greek, that's a Greek S right there. Is <laughs> help them to become a fully devoted disciple, follower of Jesus. Listen, I believe that the best thing that you and I can do for anyone is to help them become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. It's the best thing for them individually. It's the best thing for their family. It's the best thing for their marriage. It's the best thing for this community. It's the best thing for this church. It's the best thing for this world. It's the best thing for their eternity. Amen? And you can sign up online. Go to our website. You can sign up online. I need to get a head tank, head, head count so I have the uh, right amount of food. Um, encourage you to sign up for it. And uh, without any further ado, we're going to stand up. And Oh, it rhymes. Without any further ado, we're going to stand up and take two. All right. <laughs> Amen.
Okay, let's do this. Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 27. This generation. And again, keep in mind that Matthew's purpose right here is to, in this section of Scripture, is to let us know some of the reasons why the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders were rejecting Jesus. Why they did not receive him or believe in his name. And here's how I want to attack this conversation by unpacking three statements. Statement number one is the criticism of childish consumers, verses 16 through 19. Point number two, the indifference of privileged observers, verses 20 through 25. And then the eternal danger of thinking that we are all that, verses 25 through 27. All right, here we go. The criticism of childish consumers. Okay, so Jesus has been in this area for, for over a year around the Sea of Galilee, teaching about the kingdom and performing hundreds, maybe even thousands of miracles. And so there are great crowds, there's great excitement, there's great rejoicing everywhere. And in Matthew eleven sixteen through 19, Jesus is going to give us his assessment of those people who have seen, heard, and experienced all of that. I mean, they had ringside seats to what was going on. He starts off this way. To what can I compare this generation? And now you hear that, and you just know that Jesus isn't getting ready to offer these guys a compliment, right? Like you know that whatever is about to come next, that it's not going to be good. To what shall I compare this generation? You know, that, that, that this generation is a, is a phrase would be a, a, a pejorative. A pejorative is a word or a phrase expressing contempt or disapproval. Now, the gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, this generation, about 15 times on my count, after which every time he unloads on the people. Uh, we also see this phrase, this generation, used the same way in other parts of Scripture. Like in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. I found you righteous in this wicked generation. And we know that things did not go so well for that generation. And then in Jeremiah's day, we read this. You of this generation. He's talking about God, to God's people. Consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel? Or land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. And within a few years, this generation in Jeremiah's day was destroyed by a Babylonian invasion. Again, Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? A generation that has been both rejecting him for generation after generation. A generation that is refusing to receive him, refusing to believe in his name. And that Jesus gives us his comparison. They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. I'm saying, as Jesus searches for a comparison for this generation, he, he lands on a scene that would be very familiar to the people in that day, children playing in the marketplace. 
Now that day, marketplaces were like the center of the community. They're places of hustle and bustle where both children and adults would gather. And while mom and dad were busy shopping or selling their wares, catching up with the local news, the children would go out into the dusty square and they would they play games. And games children played back then were not much different than games they play today, except they didn't need batteries or Wi-Fi. They only required imagination. And they often took on the form of role-playing or imitating adults. And real small children, that's what they do, right? They imitate adults, right? You, you play dress-up, you play fireman, right? You play policeman. I remember back in the day, I remember, you know, there was a candy. Like, there was a time when smoking was really common. And there were candy cigarettes I could buy as a kid. They were actually pretty good. And we would buy those candy cigarettes and act like we're smoking, Right? Uh, you probably can't even sell them today, right? You'd be arrested or something, right? But, but we did it. Let me, I see mom and dad smoking, so let me have my candy cigarette pack, and I stick it in my pocket and it, like I was smoking, right? And two of the favorite games that they played were wedding and funeral. Now, that may seem strange to us, especially the funeral part, <laughs> uh, but these were huge social events within the community. And so Jesus wants us to picture a bunch of children playing in the marketplace, And someone says, hey, let's play wedding. And so they find someone to be the bride and someone to be the groom. And they begin to march through the streets playing a flute or whistling a tune, calling out to the other children, come on, join a parade, dance with us. No, I'm not going to play your dumb wedding game. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. Then someone says, okay, let's play funeral. Again, funerals were quite the affair back then. Whenever someone died, they would lift the body up. They would carry it through the city. All the family and friends would join this procession. And they would even hire women to be professional mourners who would cry and wail. And children have seen that again and again. So they say, hey, let's play funeral. You can be the dead body. You guys carry him. And let the rest of us, let's go cry and wail. And so they march through the streets, call to the other children, hey, join us. No, we don't want to play your dumb funeral game. Question, have you ever come across a child or children, obviously not your own, but have you ever come across a child that no matter what you try, they're never satisfied? Do you want the red cup? No, I want the blue cup. No, I don't want the blue cup. I want the green cup. Why don't you play with your video game I just bought you? No. How about playing with your, like, I don't want to play with my Legos, right? Like, nothing works. Understand, there are some people who just don't want to play, no matter what the game is. No matter how you approach them, they don't want to play. And so they'll criticize the wedding game and they'll criticize the funeral game. Nothing ever satisfies them. They always find fault. They're unwilling to participate, unwilling to be satisfied. And Jesus says, this is what this generation is like. No matter what the teaching is, no matter who is teaching you, you will not be satisfied. You are spoiled, childish, fickle, and unsatiable. They're like Goldilocks. This bed is too hard. This bed is too soft. 
except for these guys, even Little Bear's bed wasn't right. And then Jesus gives us proof that this is exactly what they're like by reminding them how they responded to both him and John the Baptist. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. Yeah, JTB, John the Baptist, you could basically say he was more the funeral mode kind of guy. A hardcore fire and brimstone message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. From a guy who lived in the wilderness, wore clothes made of camel skin and ate locusts and wild honey. No, we don't want to play John's dumb funeral game. Now Jesus, on the other hand, was more the wedding mode kind of guy. His message was still repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, but he talked about other stuff too. And he lived kind of more normal, right? He didn't live in the wilderness. He lived in the city. He, he attended social gatherings. He, he went to weddings and funerals. He, he ate food with them that didn't consist of wild locusts and honey. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. No, we don't want to play the dumb wedding game with Jesus. To what can I compare this generation? To critical children, childless consumers who are never satisfied. Jesus, John, it's not what we want. We don't like what you're saying. We don't like what you're doing. We don't like how you're asking us to be. Again, why do people reject and refuse to receive Jesus and believe in his name? Because some are like critical children, childish consumers who are never satisfied no matter what Jesus is saying. And because Jesus will not dance to the tunes they're playing. Jesus, you're not doing what we want. Uh, Jesus... That is not the way we want to live. Jesus, that is not what we want to believe. Jesus, do you hear the tune we're playing? Jesus, you're not doing what we want. And when they refuse to, when Jesus refuses to answer their tunes, They'll say things such as, I don't think I can believe in or accept the Jesus who would send people to hell. I don't think I can believe in a Jesus who's so narrow-minded to say that marriage is between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship and that sex outside of marriage is sin. I, I don't think I can believe in a Jesus who would say that taking the life in a womb is wrong and evil. Jesus, you're not doing what we want. You're not believing what we want you to believe. Jesus, you're not dancing to our tune. Understand, brothers and sisters, Jesus will never bend his grace and truth to the tunes of our wants and desires. No matter how loud or often we play them, or how many people we get to join us, or, or how many institutional experts Agree with us. And then Jesus ends this section with these following words. 
But wisdom is proved right by our deeds. In other words, the way that Jesus and John the Baptist lived out their lives demonstrated their wisdom. You see, their lives were proof that they were right and, and that they were living in the way that pleased God the Father, regardless of the criticism that others were throwing their way. So why do some people reject Jesus? Because they're childish consumers and Jesus doesn't dance to their tunes and will not always do what they want. Now let's look at the indifference of privileged observers. And, and I got to warn you, these verses are not fun, comfortable, or easy. Because they're about one of the most difficult and terrifying teachings of all Scripture. A teaching we'd rather ignore, we prefer not to think about, but we do so at our own peril. Jesus continued, then Jesus began to denounce. Like up until this time, he's been teaching for over a year, he hasn't denounced anybody. Then Jesus began to denounce, that word means to rebuke, to revile, to upbraid, to, to cast in one's teeth. A phrase that means to knock people's teeth out by throwing stones at them. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns. Not the buildings, not the walls, not the streets, but the people living in them. In which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Understand, these towns have, have witnessed with their very own eyes thousands of powerful miracles of healing. Like most of his miracles, that's where they were done. Um, miracles that, that should have brought repentance. But they did not repent. They did not turn from themselves and turn to God. And so Jesus begins to call out these three cities by name. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And here's a map. Uh, there's Capernaum. Remember, that, that, that was... Uh, Peter lived there. That's kind of Jesus' home base for much of his ministry. There's Chorazin. There's Bethsaida. It's kind of, some people have called this Jesus' evangelistic triangle. Like, so much. Most of the miracles Jesus did, it happened like right there. Right there. That's where it happened. Then he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And, and I don't think I need to tell you that when God says woe to you to somebody... It's not a good thing. In fact, it's a pronouncement of coming judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, now we hear these two towns, and it may not mean much to us. Okay. Uh, but uh, th th these two towns were on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they're uh, their territory extended to the, the border of the area of Galilee. And, and this, uh, uh, they were two cities that were steeped in Baal worship. They were immoral. They were Gentile. They were pagan. They were greedy. They were proud. And, and they were cruel. But, but both, both the prophet Amos and Joel tells us that, 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 that the people of Tyre and, and Sidon, they, they actually sold God's people into slavery to the Greeks and to the Edomites. Uh, Jeremiah says that God will pour out the winepress of his wrath on them because of their wickedness. Jeremiah 25, 22. 
I mean, so the prophets really, really denounce the wickedness of these two cities. Yet Jesus says that if the miracles that he had done in Chorazin and Bethsaida, if he had done them in these two evil, vile, wicked, ungodly cities, that they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. As a sign of mourning, right? You wear sackcloth and ashes. They would make you very uncomfortable, right? And really, when he says that, he's talking about genuine repentance. It kind of reminds me what happened to Ninevites with Jonah, right? When Jonah preached this evil city of the Assyrian Empire, one of the cruelest empires ever that had totally annihilated and tortured and killed tens of thousands of Israel. When Jonah goes there and, and, and preaches, they all, they all repent. And what he's saying is, yes, you people and your religious leaders are worse than the sinful, immoral, ungodly people that you despise and look down upon with such great disdain. How do you think that makes the people and the religious leader feel, being compared to them? Can you see why we are beginning to make the journey to them putting Jesus on the cross? And if that wasn't bad enough, to be told, to be told that you're worse than these evil people, that you knew you were better than, it's about to get even worse for them. But he's, he's not going to just tell them that you're worse than them, but that you're worse off than them. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Yes, on the day of judgment, the evil people, ungodly people of these cities will be punished, but you will receive a greater punishment than them. And because you have had the most exposure to me, the most exposure to my teaching, the most exposure to my miracles, and you remain unmoved, unrepentant, indifferent. I, I don't know, maybe they were unmoved and indifferent because they, they had more important things to do, more important things to consider, more important things to spend their time on. Hey, hey, hey we're important people. Uh, uh, we have things to do and people to see. Hey, hey, Jesus, thanks for the show. It was good. It was entertaining. Kind of enjoyed it. Some nice things you said, but I got to go. Or maybe they were unmoving or different because they didn't feel that they needed Jesus. Because they felt, hey, we're not as bad as other people. I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as some, and and, and I'm better than most. Brothers and sisters, this is the danger of thinking our version of good is good enough. Even though Jesus said to the rich young ruler, only God alone is good. Understand, the great honoring Irony is that most people don't come to Jesus today not because of their evil and sin, but because of their perceived moral goodness. Most people don't come to Jesus not because of their evil and sin, but because of their perceived, own perceived moral goodness. Yes, most people in our culture 
They don't come to Jesus because they think they're unworthy and undeserving. It's just the opposite because they think they're good. Hey, I'm a good person. I, I work hard. I've achieved a lot. I've had success. My peers admire me. I'm a good parent. I'm a good spouse. I treat people well. I volunteer at the food bank. I, I coach the soccer team. I recycle. I don't do those things that those other people do. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying they're not good enough. Amen? And he says, in you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? And Jesus here is, will you be lifted up to heaven? He's referencing Isaiah chapter 14 where Isaiah rebukes the king of Babylon who thought he was all that and proud and as good as God. People of Capernaum, you are so proud of yourself. Proud of your accomplishments. Proud of who you are. Question, do you know what is the sin of all sins and the sin that blinded the people of Capernaum? Is that they thought they were already what? Righteous. And brothers and sisters, that's deadly. I mean, at least rotten, wretched, vile sinners, they know it. But self-righteous people don't. They don't admit it. They don't think they need it. They actually think Jesus will be lucky to have them on his team. Hey, we're not some undrafted free agent. We're going to be a first-round draft pick, maybe top five. Jesus says, yet theirs is the severe judgment. And that's why throughout the New Testament, Jesus forgave harlots and prostitutes and blasted the self-righteous because they had no need of him. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For the miracles that were performed in you, if you remember back at our study of, of Matthew 8 and 9, it was in Capernaum uh, that, that, that Jesus healed the centurion servant, healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed the woman who had 12 years of bleeding, where he calmed the violent store, where he cast out the demons, where he raised Jairus' daughter from the grave, where he healed the guy who was let down on the mat in front of him and said, your sins are forgiven. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, the most wicked and moral society that may have ever existed, right? I mean, the men there even tried to rape God's angels. The miracles that were formed in you, Capernaum, think you're all that, and performed in Sodom, it would have been remained to this day. But I tell you, it's more bearable for Sodom the day of judgment than for you. Please don't miss the warning Jesus is giving us. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the light, the greater the punishment for not receiving that light. The greater the exposure to the truth, the greater the condemnation for rejecting that truth. 
The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the light, the greater the punishment for not receiving that light. The greater the exposure to the truth, the greater the condemnation for rejecting that truth. I said that people Sodom, they will be condemned at judgment. But the people of Capernaum, who heard the gospel, saw the miracles with their own eyes, and chose to reject him, will suffer a worse punishment. I'm sorry, there's no proof anywhere that people of Capernaum, that they ever hated Jesus, they ever opposed him, they ever mocked him, they ever ridiculed him. They were just indifferent to him. What he said did not really matter to them. Well, a guy I read this week wrote the following about the people of Capernaum. They only had a mild interest in his teachings. His miracles entertained them and nothing more. His providential goodness never touched their hearts. His doctrine produced no change in their lives. Self-satisfied or complacent, whether in the form of fair, pharisaic self-righteousness or popular indifference, both are condemned by Christ as the grossest of evils. On the outside, they were eminently respectable. But hell will be hotter for them than for the Sodomites. Told you it wasn't easy. Maybe girl, we live in an age and a country of incredible privilege. Uh, when it comes to hearing the Christ and his gospel, it's everywhere, right? Churches are everywhere. I, I mean, we have, I don't know where I left my phone, I was going to pull it out. You know, we have apps, Bible apps on our phone, podcasts, I mean, everywhere, right? Maximum exposure. We are privileged people. What are we going to do with that privilege? Now I'm going to say something that may be tough to hear. Not that I haven't already said stuff tough to hear, but that's why Matthew is verse by verse is so good because we can't. And this is important, right? If it's true, it's really important, and it is true. But I'm going to say something that may be tough to hear. If someone is never planning and repenting and surrendering to Jesus, I recommend them never go to church again. And never listen to a Christian podcast. Because every time you expose yourself to his truth and you continue to reject it, your guilt has just increased. Like the people of Capernaum. Every single time. Now, I'm not saying stop coming to church, but you're like, hey, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to repent. I'm never going to see myself of needing to surrender to Jesus. Okay, we're about done. And again, I know, I know this is tough stuff, but let me tell you, our ignorance is not an escape, okay? It's just not an escape. And, you know, I, I would fail you as a teacher of God's word not to talk about something, right? No matter if it's uncomfortable. The next part I just simply called, it'll go quick, so the internal consequences of thinking that we are all that. At that time, right, he just pronounced these woes. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. You know where he hid them? In plain sight. You've hidden them from the wise and learned. He's not talking about, hey, don't go to school, don't learn. No. 
He's, I've hidden these things from the proud. I've hidden them from the arrogant. I've hidden them from the self-righteousness. I've hidden them from those who think they're all that. I've hidden them from those who think they're doing me a favor. Reveal them to little children, to the humble. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. As James says, God does what? Opposes the proud, but gives what? It gives grace to the humble. The first beatitude is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are we when we realize that before God, we are bankrupt. That we bring nothing towards our salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chose, chooses to reveal himself. And who does Jesus choose to reveal himself to? Not to individual person, but a type of people. The humble, right? He chooses to reveal himself to humble people. Because prideful people think they have no need of him. Again, extremely tough teaching Jesus is bringing to us in our text this morning. But it's also extremely important. The greater the privilege, the greater responsibility. And you and I, being in this room today, right, are people of great privilege. Now, do you know how Matthew ends this section? It's so good. Uh, we're going to look at it in depth next week, but I think all of us kind of need to hear this after, woo! Here's what he says next. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, trying to measure up, trying to be good enough, trying to perform, trying to do, trying to not do, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I'm going to show you a picture, give you a little story as we wrap up. Anybody know who this dude is right here? That's Mr. Einstein. He's actually looking out the window of a train. And, and one time, Einstein was traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching tickets of every passenger. And when he got to Einstein, Einstein, you know, he reached in his vest pocket. It wasn't there. He checked his pants pocket. It wasn't there. He looked in his briefcase. It wasn't there. He couldn't find his ticket. It wasn't in the seat beside him. He just couldn't find it. And the conductor said, don't worry, Mr. Einstein. I know who you are. We know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein goes, okay, thanks. And the conductor continued to punch tickets. And I was about to exit the, that car to go to the next. He looked behind him. And the great physicist was on his hands and knees looking under the seat. And he rushes back. He says, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I, I told you, we know who you are. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. And Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. <laughs> and Jesus has told us where our train is going. Our train is going one day to stand before the great judgment throne of God. And based on where we know we're going, Jesus would like to, so to speak, punch our tickets 
so that we could receive him, believing his name, and find life. Amen? Amen. You can breathe now. I know heavy stuff, true stuff. He that has ears, let him hear. Amen? Every week we do communion at Maple Grove, and, and so we're going to do that. Uh, we have our stations off the side where you can pick up your communion. You'll notice the boxes. That's how we collect our offerings. We don't pass offering plates because we're offering plate, pass her out, or challenged. Right? We, we always mess it up, so you can drop in offerings. You'll see a big uh, blue bucket. We drop a few bucks in there every week if you have it, or you can do it online. And that's our compassion bucket, and we use that to help people in our community. We pay rent, utilities, single mo- all kinds of things we've done, bought refrigerators, stoves, di- all kinds of things we do from this compassion bucket for needs within our community. And by the way, if you know someone in our community that has a need, be sure to contact us because we probably have some money sitting in the bucket right now that could be used to help them. And so um, as we get, we're going to sing an- another song here. And, 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 you know, I invited some other worship leaders to come on screen today. And, and uh, this is a song that, that I like. It may be new to you. Um, uh, but it's, it's called like put the first things first and, and the first things first in our life really is, is God right God being in his place and everything else falls into place so if you guys would stand I'm going to pray and as we begin the worship if you haven't grabbed your communion feel free to do so Heavenly Father we come before you and we just thank you for this time we thank you for your word and, and God I, I pray for For anyone right now in this room, Lord, who's not yet surrendered to you, who's not yet received you, who's not yet believed in your name, who's not yet repented, God, that you will just stir their hearts. Holy Spirit, may your word just come full force in their life, and may they hear that incredible invitation that we can come to you. And God, I pray as we sing this song that we really do want to make you first in our lives. And help us as we celebrate in just a few moments the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.